Larry Sharp, we did miss you. And this is the gift of church when people share their talents and time. Well, dang it. Summer's back. (laughs) Somehow I thought we'd gotten away with, um, you know, we were going to have this wet, cool, just going to slide on into September and October. So I thought, I'm just going to dive right into the deep end. Why not? It's summer. It's still hot. I need to get wet. And I'm going to make you join me. So that one of the deep ends I'm going to dive into is there's this old saw, and I really do think it's an old saw, that there is a disconnect, a dissonance, oil and water difference between science and religion. And I'm going to say, uh-uh. If you were going to make a Venn diagram the overlap of science and religion that that I shaped is actually almost circular. The two fit well over each other. And I'll get into that. That's what we're going to talk about today. So I want to tell you a story first of this week. I was... um, I was invited to Phillips Theological Seminary. You've heard me talk about that seminary here in Tulsa. It's a great gift. And by the way, our religious educator, Susan Spooner, is starting classes there, taking a UU history class. So start asking her date kind of questions. What did happen in 1658, by the way? Um, The class I was invited to attend, they were having a discussion. This was a mixture of new and uh, older students, existing students, students who'd been going to seminary for a while. And the question was, how does your tradition, so how does Unitarian Universalism deal with pastoral authority? Where do I get my authority to be your minister? And what does that mean? And really, because we're a Unitarian Universalist church, I bounce that question back to you because we are doing this work together. Where do you get your pastoral authority? Pastoral authority, that's one of those seminary kind of terms, means how do you get the, well, you know what authority means. How do you get the leadership and the skills and ability to tell anyone else or work with anyone else on issues that are of a religious or spiritual nature. So that's a question for all of you. Where does your authority come from? Which is a way of asking what is what do you see is of utmost importance and how does that filter into your life and the decisions you make and the relationships you build, that kind of thing. So, the, the, so I was there with um, uh, Disciples of Christ, Presbyterian, Methodist, um, a, a whole bunch of other Christian leaders. And these are eager students, busy studying. And I have to say, so what, what the other um, people, it was a panel of, of seven of us, 
speaking from our tradition. And so people are saying, well, it comes from the Bible and God, and then, there we ha- then we have this book of rules, or we have this creed, or we have this, and this is where my authority comes from. And I have to go, well... <laughs> so I paint a picture of you all for them. So I say, I stand in front of a group of people for whom Jesus Christ and the words in the Bible are deeply meaningful and speak to them and provide an important guide for how to live and love. Yes, there are a bunch of you here. And (laughs) I have a whole bunch of people who for whom God has no meaning, religion has no meaning, and I had to acknowledge that many of us, and I'll include myself, are here because we've been harmed or abused by religion, which is very confusing. And we're triggered by words like God or religion or faith or... And that... My authority (laughs) comes from you. And my authority comes from myself. So that's the deep end in which I tread water like mad, just so you know. Because, and I've said this before, I think we are honest about what it means to sit together. I'm not convinced that a religious tradition that has creeds means every single one of you believes the same thing. Think if we said a creed that the reality is we all bring our experiences, even if they've been the most loving, wonderful upbringing in a religious tradition. You've had life experiences that change what those words mean and how you fit in with it. So as I've told you before, what we're doing this month, and we'll do it next week as well, we'll wrap this up, to make life confusing, no, we don't just listen to the Bible as a text, but we have six, count them, six sources of our religious wisdom, which is in fact like saying, our sources of religious uh, wisdom is infinite. And it is. How could it not be? The world is infinite. So I'm going to enlist your help. This is going to be one of those sermons you have to participate. If you are sitting by yourself, join that person, because I want you to pair up in two or threes. I'm not going to give you a lot of time. What I want you to say to each other, don't get into science and religion debate, I have a very simple question for you. When have you felt awe? A-W-E, awe. Think about that a second. When have you felt awe? And I'll talk later about what I mean by awe. Doesn't matter, but what do you mean by awe? If someone's sitting by themselves, go join them. We have some newcomers. Make them feel at home. We have some introverts. Don't make them get up. (laughs)
Go. I'll give you three minutes. Get with someone. Someone sit with Chris Powell. this on. Be sure you switch. One more minute. Ten seconds. Okay, come on back. Oh, I want to hear these stories. I'm going to make you talk again. So we're going to look at our two sources. We'll come back to awe. It's all related. So the two sources that we're mashing up, which I'm kind of calling religion and science, the first is the direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder. Awe. Affirmed in all cultures 
which moves us to a renewal of the spirit and an openness to the forces which create and uphold life. That's actually a damn good description of awe. That's the very first source. If, if, if our listing of sources is a rank of any kind. And then the fifth one is humanist teachings, which counsel us to heed the guidance of reason and the results of science and warns us against idolatries of the spirit and mind. Wait, I just told you to pay attention to the spirit and what you took in. And this is saying, well, think twice about that because you have a brain. But I think those two encapsulate on a certain level that religion-science divide. And I think as Unitarian Universalists, we are committed to existing in this world that makes us hold paradox together. And it was, it was the, well, it's been a lot of theologians and religious people who've said, pay attention to your experiences, but I think our tradition in particular was deeply moved by the transcendentalists and what was happening in the 1800s and by a German theologian, Schleiermacher, who said, who were, who were pushing against that notion of creed and that someone can tell you what to think and feel. And people were saying, well, no, that, you know, that doesn't fit me and that's not what I'm experiencing, what you're telling me. And it's something we still struggle with today. The whole Me Too movement is women saying, I've experienced something and you have to listen. So it's work that we continue to have to do to to pay attention to what someone says is their reality. And we're dismissive of ourselves and what we've experienced. And some of that is willful and some of that is cultural and we don't even realize that we've strayed from our own experience. So what Schleiermacher, he wrote an essay about, and you'll love this term, it is made for us, um, religious despisers. So he's speaking in his time, um, and he says, but the imparting of religion is not to be sought in books like that of intellectual conceptions, and scientific knowledge. And as Thoreau and Emerson and poets and artists and naturalists have told us, no, there are religious experiences, there, are, there is awe to be found in the world everywhere. Since we can't really discuss all our amazing sources of awe, which I'd love to at some point, how many of you told a story about being out in nature to your partner? Yeah. Or how many told a story about a, a moment of creation, the birth of a child, or giving birth, or... 
I think those are important religious understandings. That moment when we realize, the world is so much bigger than I am. And I don't know if I can solve this, but we always have to bear in mind there has to be a corrective because it is so easy to say, this experience was so powerful, it must be the truth. And it must be the truth for you because it was so powerful for me. And we live in a culture that idealizes, back to that word idolatry, that we don't use often, but we do idealize and have idolatry toward the individual. So again, what we're often doing here is that both-and paradox. We want you to pay deep attention to what happens within your own body and self and mind. And it has to be confirmed and checked within community. So along comes the fifth source of our knowledge about humanism. Because what often happens with only paying attention to your own experiences is it can become isolating and, well, we've gone there. So humanism and and the valuing of technology of industry, of advancement in reason, came into our religious tradition for very good reasons. Came in again also in the 1800s. That push against um, human experiences was also a push against this industrialization where things were becoming much more lockstep, factory-based, a lot of pollution and problems and poverty and And then humanism fully stepped into our Unitarian Universalist tradition in the middle of the last century when people said, you know, it appears that Christianity failed because of World War II. Christianity and the churches on many levels were complicit with all of the warfare and with the rise of, of Hitlerism and concentration camps and dividing people into pure and not pure. Same problem with race here in, in the United States. Our religious traditions have played a really down and dirty role in saying those are truths. So as a corrective for that kind of groupthink um, being swayed by emotion as a group and saying, this is how we should all think, we should all see this class of people as inferior. People said, wait, wait, science has a lot to teach us. And we have brains and we need to think. We need to think for ourselves. And we need to pay attention to that. And that's a critical corrective. Again, I still don't think the two are not compatible. Uh, The other day I had a little thought, as I'm always thinking about, how do we think as a community? How do we support individuals and think as a church? And it dawned on me that at the core of scientific knowledge is this notion of peer review. You cannot do science on your own. 
You may discover things, but other people have to verify your discovery. And I thought, oh, peer review. That's just another word for beloved community. Huh. Okay. Sometimes the line between science and religion is presented as myth versus fact. And I think in both traditions, in both scientific circles and human religious circles, you need myth and story in order to keep going on your discovery when everyone says you are crazy if you are pursuing that line of thought. Well, no, my intuition tells me this actually is the way to solve this problem of cancer. How many times has science been overturned because that one lone person was willing to pay attention to themselves? So I think awe. Let's go back to awe. I think there's a lot there in awe. I'm going to give you uh, another m- two minutes. You'll have to be short. Because I want you to go back to your story of awe. Don't bring a new one in, no fair. What I want you to, add, to tell each other is what was surprising or disorienting about that moment of awe? Because one of the definitions of awe is that you're exposed to something new in a way. So you may have to think, wait, if it was a sunset, what what was surprising or disorienting? And you may find, hmm, maybe that wasn't a moment of awe because I didn't feel that. What was surprising or disorienting? Two minutes. Go. One more minute.
Ten more seconds. Come on back, you awesome people. We're talking about awe in this way because it's only recently in the last decade that scientists and psychologists and social scientists have started looking at awe as a specific emotion and really tried to define it. If you're a religious people and a Bible reader, you know it is jam-packed with awe. It often is... um, comes down translated as fear and they were afraid the angel descends and they were afraid Mary's visited by an angel and she is afraid it's a, it's a poor translation of the Hebrew Aramaic and Greek word for awe So the scientists that are studying it and trying to understand, so how does this work in a human being and how is this different than joy or uh, amazement? There are two components to awe. It's that moment when you realize the vastness of something. We went to the Grand Canyon just a year ago and if you don't feel awe in front of the Grand Canyon... But it's not, and that's why sunsets and the stars, the ocean, but it's also in the small, the, the micro. I looked up micro and macro images because n- nature imitates itself. So there are some you know, astonishing photographs of cells that mimic photographs taken from the air of, of river deltas or of fields or there's one that's a dragon close up of a dragonfly's wing and then fields that have been marked off and plowed and planted with different things and we talked about the moment of a birth or a or a death i am in part a minister because of that awe from the death of family and friends and the now the great gift of being, to, being able to attend people as they near death. So perceived vastness, which is also the gift of the hill. We have a vista. We can see the vastness. And we have the forest. It's a different kind of vastness. And the other part of awe is um, this technical term that's an Uh, educational term called accommodation and it's not accommodation in the sense of how do we help you learn something if you aren't uh, if you if you can't see how do we make an accommodation for you it's not like that it's how does your brain and I think of those dominoes moving or things clicking into place how does this new information this sense of vastness What does your brain do and your heart do to accommodate this new bit of information? Because it reorders the world. Everyone who's had a child goes, the minute you have a child, it's like, whoa, the world is a different place. 
the minute someone dies. Oh my gosh, the world is a different place. So the educators have started using awe to talk about what does, what does feeling awe do to someone and how to, how to use it with specifically with students and how to use it in any sort of setting. And I want, you to, I want to read a list. This comes from Paul Piff. Because um, what he says is learning is about helping a learner understand the world is bigger than the self. And he has a um, study called Awe, the Small Self. And then what it does, gives you pro-social behavior. So when you experience awe, you're more generous. Your decision-making is more ethical. You're kinder towards others. And there's a decrease in a sense of entitlement. So awe pushes us, gives us a big kick in a direction of compassion and generosity and thinking outside yourself. So it's an incredibly useful tool. So I'm going to double back around. Because I think, no, I know, that both science and religion ask us to look into this vastness all the time. And when we start getting too narrow-minded, narrow-visioned. It is our place in this Sunday morning to say, whoa, oh, oh, thanks for that look, but you've got to broaden your view. And science does the same thing. It's the same notion of, that's a great question, and what's the next question? We are a people of question askers. There's always another question. There's always an infinity. There's always something beyond in any tradition, be it science, that says, don't ask any more questions, run. It's only when you think you know everything that you lack the capacity for awe. And this is hard for those of us that are at the older end of our years, because, hey kind of seen it all. But that means we're not asking enough and we're not paying close enough attention. We may need to look smaller. Because when you know everything and can be perfected, that's an idolatry to knowledge. And when you think you have all the spiritual experience and information you need, that's another kind of death and an idolatry to experience. And so we have to really embrace them both. Trust your heart. Trust that in community, with peer review, peer review of your experience, that we will be more generous, more compassionate, and a better people. May it be so.